But for now, we're talking about leadership. And over the last couple of Sundays, we've been speaking about our plan as a church to have a leadership team, to strengthen the team. I think there's a, a slide that you'll get to see what it is, just as a reminder of who we are. Um, the team is going to be Bethany, Nat, um, myself, and Robin. Um, and the plan is on the 28th of, Mar- of May. Again, covered this, but just in case you're coming new to it, 28th of May, we're going to have a Sunday to um, pray for the team, to appoint the team, get it in place. And I'm so excited for what this is going to mean for us as a church and what it looks like. Um, I think these guys are going to do a brilliant job of serving the church. They have proven amongst our family that they are people who love Jesus, love the church, devoted to him and to our family. And it's certainly going to be healthier than, the, than what we currently have in place a healthier structure, if you like, um, compared to what we're at. And at the same time, I've said this each time, but I just want to keep reiterating, this is, as a team, we would acknowledge, not the finished article of team. We have been celebrating a lot recently our diversity of how God has built us and made us as a family. And we have a different diversity in, in national, nationalities, age, culture, all of those sorts of things. And we want a, the team to reflect something of that. It's already an active priority for us to look to grow this team, to have more women on it, to reflect something of the, the gift of diversity diversity that God has made us to be. So this is very much the beginning and how we're starting out. And as we head towards having a leadership team, we just think it's really important that we share what it is that we believe about what church leadership should look like for us as a family. There's a lot of debate about this kind of thing within church circles, particularly about how men and women should be involved in leadership and what that should look like. And we want to bring in everybody in on What do we think and how do we see what the Bible says? Um, We're taking two weeks on this because we want to be really clear, want to be really transparent about about where we're at and and about some of these decisions that we're coming to on our leadership. Try and get everybody on the same page. And so if you're here last week, you would have heard that we approached it in a very much broad brushstroke approach. We were looking at what does the whole Bible say about the heart of God for both men and women working together? And today we're going to look a little bit more specifically about what does God say about leadership in the church. And that's the aim. We want to hear what God is saying. Again, I said this yesterday, but I think it's always important to caveat it and to approach it and encourage us to be thinking, all of us, none of us come to this issue neutral. None of us come just like, oh, I will only hear what the Bible says. All of us come with our kind of own perceptions or um, biases, preferences to who we think should be leading in church. Um, It's something that's formed already within us. But one of our core beliefs as a church is we always want to believe what the Bible says. We believe that the Bible is God's word to us. He is speaking to us through his word, and it is good for us, for our good. And so whether what we find in there matches our hearts or like our preferences and what we would like, We always try and say, no, no, but we think the way that he has ordered things and designed things is for our good. And one just other final comment before we get cracking is, I said this last time, but really this is the case. One of the the main things probably that I've learned from looking into this in as much detail as I can over the last couple of years is that there are so many good arguments on many different sides of this debate. That there's some people who really love Jesus who would come down in very different positions to where we would. And I think what that means is that when we have questions or we've got points of contention, it really should draw us together as a family rather than driving us apart. And this is really just our attempt to try and be faithful to the whole of what we think that the Bible says on this. 
to bring in like our best interpretation, holding intention, all of what God says on what is a fairly complex issue. And so this is definitely not, guys, we have found the answer. Right? We have settled this age-old debate. We, Revelation Church, have landed on the perfect formula. Everybody else move out the way, and everybody better get online with how we see things. This is us just, I think, as I said, trying to hold what we think is the best interpretation. And so I really want to be clear, you don't have to agree with everything that we say in our position on some of these things in order to be a vital, life-giving, life-receiving part of our church family. In a church this size, this diverse, I would expect there to be different views, and I just think that's okay. And my hope would be that as you hear what we say today and take what we had last week, that you just think this is a good-hearted interpretation trying to be faithful to God's word, as I've been saying, that it might, you might allow it to shape some of your thinking and, and to receive it and allow it to challenge perhaps some of your own ideas and that you might come down and be like, no, I'm, I'm happy to get on board with this. I can see the workings out. I'm happy with this, even if your own personal convictions might come down in a slightly different way. So as we pick up from last week where we started, which I, I really want to remind us where we got to because it is essential scaffolding um, to work on what we're going to look at today. That it's like, it very much is a part two of part one. And what we saw last week is that from the very beginning, God's vision for men and women has been really clear. This is Genesis 1. Before he's even made mankind, this is what he had in mind. He said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion. So he's saying, let them reign over all the earth. So at the beginning, God is creating mankind and he's giving them this sense of that they're filled and imbued with this sense of like purpose, calling. They are made for something. Let them reign and reign as a them, man and woman, male and female. He created them, we looked at. That they are fulfill, to fulfill this call as this kind of indivisible them, man and woman together. And we saw how this harmony, this togetherness, was lost at the fall. How the curse of sin came in, it drove a wedge between man and woman that we see manifested all the time today in our culture and in our society. But how in Christ, in the church, this original plan of unity and togetherness between man and woman, working together, is now being restored. And that perhaps the most vivid picture we see in the New Testament of this working out in the church now today, we saw in Revelation chapter 5, that Jesus has ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. This beautiful picture of men and women working together as priests reigning on earth, now, sounding those same notes from Genesis chapter 1 of let them have dominion over all the earth. So that's where we got to last week. And now as we turn to the New Testament and work out, okay, that's the big picture, but like, what does it actually mean for local church leadership? And we're going to approach it today in three stages. We're going to look at the dynamic of how the church today should be operating and how we see in Scripture this, this dynamic of the spiritual gifts given by God being the kind of way that church works today. And then secondly, we'll look at the role of eldership and what that means. And then finally, 
the third thing we'll do is I want to then share a picture that we find in the Bible that I think hopefully will help bring together everything that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks to bring a bit of clarity, simplicity um, about what we think church leadership should look like and how it should feel. And so that's the plan, those three stages. Why are we approaching, approaching it like that? Well, it would be really great, wouldn't it, if we could just turn to the Bible and just like, here is a really simple template. You need to lift off and there it is. Like, wouldn't it be really handy if we could just turn to a little bit in the Bible and just like a little addition at the end? It's like, oh, by the way, if you are a church in a large UK city in the 21st century, and I don't know, perhaps you're about four years old as a church, and you meet in a sports hall, these lovely drapes in the background, and you're perhaps maybe just looking to strengthen your leadership team, here is exactly what to do. Here's the playbook. But it doesn't have that in there. At least my Bible doesn't have that. Have you ever noticed that? The Bible doesn't always directly answer the questions that we might have. It doesn't always come with a, an exact plan or an exact template. And so I'm going to disappoint some of us here today. You will not find the term leadership team mentioned in the Bible. It's not there. But then I'd probably want to point out that you won't find the term leadership, oh, sorry, eldership team in the Bible. You won't find any real specific church should definitely be led in this way in the New Testament. I just don't think you find it. The, when you come to the Bible asking these questions of this is, uh, like, what, is the, what did the New Testament day by day, what did their churches, like, how were these things led day by day? When we come with those questions, we actually don't find all that much. It's just not a question that the Bible seems overly concerned with trying to show us. This is a big contrast, by the way, to the Old Testament. When you think back to some of the leadership roles there for God's people, you've got something like priests. Priests, there is a lot of detail of how they led and where they fit into the overall structure of God's people at the time and exactly, precisely what they did every single day, like everyday life for priests and what their duties were, even down to the detail of like how they were to wash their hands and when. I mean, it really goes into the detail. We've got the role of kings in the Old Testament. And that is very, very clear, because essentially it was just a photocopy from the nations around them. That's what it, how it came about. It's like, we want to be like them. We know exactly what that looked like. Even judges, the most like, obscure, slightly weird, like, what, what is a judge? Even that, we at least get loads of individual examples in the book of Judges that shows us, this is what they're doing, this is what this person's doing. You build this composite picture of, okay, this is how the nation was being led at this time. But the New Testament is just much less prescriptive. We meet a lot of churches in the New Testament. All kinds of churches in all sorts of different cities. We meet the Roman church, the Galatian church, the Corinthian church. We meet a church in Antioch, all sorts of different churches. Has it ever struck you when reading about those, we never find out who leads those churches? Never. We love to know who's leading, don't we? We love to be like, ooh, who's the, who's like the face behind that? Who's the personality? Bible, just not so much. Despite it being focused a lot, an incredible amount on people. That letters, there's a, a chapter 16 in, in the book of Romans that Paul's writing to the church there. 29 names he lists of people who are involved in the church there. Mary, Junior, Andronicus, Rufus, Aquila, Priscilla, Hermes, Hermas. 29 names. Did any of them lead the church? Maybe, but we're just not told. 
consistently, the Bible doesn't really reveal these kind of details to us. It doesn't tell us who was leading, doesn't tell us how it was led, doesn't tell us how it was structured, what teams they might have had, what meetings they had, what cringy like, team-building weekends away they went on. None of that. We just don't find it out. These specific questions we might have, the Bible doesn't provide very specific answers. And so while the exact clarity of structure and models may not be a big focus of the New Testament. I think, though, what we do see is that it's clear that good leadership, godly leadership, is vital within churches for them to flourish. One of the images that we find in the, church of, the life of church in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, he repeatedly comes to, is not, here's a big organizational structure of the church, but he describes it as the body of Christ repeatedly. And here he is talking of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then he continues in verse 27. He says, now you are the body. Speaking to the whole church, he says, you are the body and individually members of it. And it's this idea that the church is made up. They are one body, all of them part of this whole but each of them are different parts of the body. Like, you're a foot, you're a lung, you're a blood vessel. And you each are different, and you've got different parts to play for the functioning and the flourishing of the whole. This is an image that is emphasized repeatedly in Paul's writing, comes up a number of times. And in fact, he goes into, into depth in it, in the book of Romans, the book of 1 Corinthians, the book of Ephesians, these kind of pillars of Paul's writing. And where he speaks of the body of Christ these different roles that each person has to have. Each time, he then says, the ability and the power to perform the role that God is giving you, they, that comes through the gifts that is given by God. So we see this in Romans chapter 12, talking of the body of Christ. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all of these, and he's speaking of the gifts here, he says, all of these, again, in the context of the body, are empowered by the one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as he wills. And then Ephesians chapter 4, again, talking of the body, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, so when Christ ascended into heaven, he led out a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And most translations would have that, gave gifts to people. And so we see this dynamic of the body working together as the New Testament church. And it's not God being like, oh, what have we already got within the church? Like, how can we work with that? But this is a picture of God saying, I will meet the needs of my church. I'll make sure that all of the gifting that the church needs is already in there. And in each of these passages, it then goes to list out some of these spiritual gifts and what that actually looks like. Each emphasizes leadership. Again, Romans 12, the one who leads with zeal. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, gifts of healing, helping, administrating. That actually in some translation is gift of leadership and various kind of tongues. Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, the leadership giftings. Consistently through the New Testament, we see God wants leadership in his church. And he will take, in fact, personal responsibility to make sure that it is there. Like the church has everything that it needs. It has the leaders that it needs. 
It's like God saying, like, I really care about this. I want to make sure. I'm not taking any chances. I am going to make sure my church is provided for. And one of the beautiful things that we get here is we see God kind of repeatedly emphasizing this, and we take the, the passages almost like as a trio, is that what we see in Romans chapter 12 is God giving the gift. And the language there is primarily the language used of God the Father giving the gifts. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, we see that the gifts are given by the ascended Christ, God the Son. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've got the gifts empowered by the Spirit. We've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, like this Trinitarian move of God, just being like the dynamic, the harmony within God of like, this is what we want to do with our church. We want to bless it. We want to pour out the gifts. We want to make sure that it is provided for. Building his people to build his church for the building up of the body. He loves to give gifts to his people. He loves to impart new abilities and new power and put new dynamics within people. And this is something that he loves to do within his church. This is easily one of the best things about my job of planting this church over the last four years and being involved in it. It's just seeing God dropping new gifting into the church, even from the very beginning. Just one example that is a very memorable story for me, because it comes from our very beginning days, where just like nine or ten of us were starting the church, and we realized literally nobody within the team had any experience of being in a worship band before. And they're trying to think, like, what are we actually going to do about worship in our church? And I noticed Helena could sing. And that was enough for me. I was like, that's red rag to a ball. Helena can hold a tune. And so I remember the conversation just saying to Helena, look, I know you have zero experience of leading worship on a Sunday, of being in a worship team, a worship band in any way. How would you like to oversee our entire worship ministry in our church <laughs> and naively faithfully whatever she said yes and though immediately as she said yes and stepped into it new gifting started to flourish she was given the gifting that she needed that we needed as a church now not just not to put too much of a focus on you Helena, but brilliant worship leader now raising up other leaders continuing to shape our worship culture as a family. Just one example there. God making sure that the church has the gifts that it needs. And so in, as we approach this, the scriptures and we think, oh God, like, show, us a, show us a structure. Show us a like, leadership model. Get, show us so we can just lift it up and we don't have to think about it too much. God wants to show us this. I pour out my spiritual gifting on my church. And that's how it will flourish. Like Paul saying, this is now the dynamic that this church is going to work in. This church thing, the everyday functioning of it, this is what it looks like. The dynamic of the New Testament church is not so much a hierarchy and a structure and positions that need to be filled. It's now about people that need to be filled. People that are filled with the Spirit and then empowered with the gifting to do all that God calls them to do. Gifts that it says in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians, gifts to each one. That's the language it's using. That each person is given a gift, each person given a role. And as we step into that, as he pours out his gifts, then leaders will emerge in the church. And it's this language, I think, of each one, that this language that starts to point us towards, well, who gets to do what in the kingdom of God? Who gets to do this and who gets to do that? 
who gets to lead? That as we read about some of these, these gifts of like teaching and shepherding and apostleship and leadership, we might think, who gets to get in on that? Well, here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, it is the same God who empowers them, and again, it's the gifts, same God that empowers the gifts, all in everyone. All of the gifts, Paul is saying, empowered by God in everyone. In all three of these passages, Paul actually could hardly be, I won't go through them all, but he could hardly be more broad, could hardly be more all-encompassing in the language that he's using of drawing people in to the gifts, that all of the gifts are for all of the people. I think this is vital as we seek to understand uh, what does it actually mean for us to be a people reigning today as priests, men and women working together? What does that look like on the ground in the church? In any of these three passages... Quite a lengthy bit of scripture overall if you add them all up. As Paul's talking about the gifts, he could easily have said, look, 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 here's some gifts over here. And there's loads of gifts over here that are for everybody. But there is just a few gifts over here. that They've just got a few parameters attached to them. Easily he could have said that. But he doesn't. In fact, you almost get the opposite. In 1 Corinthians 12, again, he says, all the gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And then again, verse 18, it says, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. It's like the only factor at play here, the only factor that gets to decide who does what in God's kingdom is the Spirit. He is the one that is at work, choosing which gift goes to which person. It's not about which ethnicity you're part of, not, part of, not about which class you are or social standing or time you've been serving in the church or your Bible knowledge or your allergies or your, uh, I don't know. It's just not about anything else. It's not about, for our purposes, not about your gender. There's just nothing in there that says men get to do this and women get to do this. Anyone can have the gift of healing or prophecy, or tongues. Or anyone can have the gift of apostleship, or evangelism, or leadership. I think that's what we see here. And again, these gifts given for the building up of the church. That's what Paul's saying in all three of the passages. Bringing the church to maturity. Again, no suggestion that you get a gift and then Paul's like, well, you can, you can use it here. Or you can use it in this context. You're allowed to build up this little bit of the church or this portion of the church for the whole church. I think, we think, this is the most straightforward reading, the clearest way of understanding what Paul is getting at in these passages, that all of the opportunity is available for all of the gifting, for all of the people. That as the Spirit freely gives the gifts, men should be prophesying and serving in kids' work and doing pastoral care and involved in leading the church and preaching on a Sunday morning. And women should be prophesying and serving in the kids' work and doing pastoral care and involved in leading the church and preaching on a Sunday morning. That anyone in the church has the potential to do any of the things. All access, no closed doors, as the Spirit gives the gifts. This is what I think we would say is the main thing that 
the big thing, if you like, the main message of this dynamic of men and women working together today in the church together, using all of the gifts together in all of the spaces, all of the time, doing it all as a people. And at the same time, I do think there's an extra layer that the New Testament would want to bring in to, uh, for us to pay attention to, that we are distinct and unique in who we are. So we are equal and together, and we're operating in all of the same places in what we do. And as men and women, we are distinct and unique in who we are. One of the things that we noted last week when we were looking at this is that when the New Testament is teaching on the relationships between men and women and the dynamics between them and how that works out, it's often reaching back into the creation narrative, that beautiful picture of harmony and togetherness and oneness that you see in Scripture. Their uniqueness and their distinctness is feeding into the harmony that they have. That Their harmony comes through their difference. It's emphasized. Like one is woman, one is man, and the only way then that they are able to do what God is calling them to. The only way God's call can happen is them bringing something different to the table as men and as women, that bring, coming in their femaleness and in their maleness to do the work that God has given them. And I think we see this out, play out in the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which again we looked at last week and is the complex passage that Paul writes on head coverings. And again, it's complex. We don't have time to do the deep dive that I would love to do. And many of you would find very, very dull. But I'm very happy to talk about it in detail. Come and chat with me. Genuinely, if you've got questions, we'd love to talk about it. We won't go into detail because it's complex in all that's said there. But nonetheless, super helpful for us because it's one of the only examples we see in the New Testament of this like, practical, on-the-ground dynamic of men and women worked out in the gathered church together. And what despite it being a complex passage, what is really clear is that Paul's intention in that passage is saying, look, when men and women come together in the gathered church, I want them to prophesy, or like it's good for them to prophesy. Like I'm saying, how can we make this happen? So like it's good for them to do exactly the same thing. But he doesn't just completely flatten it out. He doesn't say, okay, you can do the same thing, so you are essentially the same, like everything is the same. His whole point throughout the narrative, the reason it's so complex, is like, I want you to do the same thing, and I want you to recognize that you are essentially different. That in prophesying as a man, in prophesying as a woman, you do actually bring something different to the table. It's a wonderful difference. I want you to recognize it, that when you're doing exactly the same thing, performing exactly the same action, you are bringing something different. And that's the tension he's wanting to hold throughout the whole passage. He's saying, like, men and women, you can do the same thing in all the same places. You can do it together. And your uniqueness from one another brings a difference. And the reason I delve into that passage is I think it really helps us understand the biblical concept of eldership. Now, in the churches where I grew up in, leadership was basically eldership. It was a position held by, uh, by a bunch of men in the church, a few men, and that was the leadership, and the elders did it all. They had the meetings, they set the vision, they made the decisions, they decided their theology. I remember when I was an intern at the church and just thinking, like, one day I, I wonder if I might get invited into an eldership meeting. At this point, I had a fairly wonky, like, I hadn't grasped the priesthood of all believers kind of idea that, like, we've all got a part to play. I was like, I just want to get in that room. 
because eldership was a big deal. Capital B, capital D. And maybe you're the same. And you're thinking, Duncan, in two weeks teaching, you're only just mentioning eldership now. How much longer have we got to go on this? But the reason I wait till now is that I wonder if maybe eldership doesn't quite feature as prominently in the New Testament as some of us might think. The word elder and the word overseer, which is kind of its synonymous, interchangeable word, as people involved in church leadership, it's only mentioned well, it's pretty, pretty sparingly in the New Testament. There's only five books in the Bible that really talk about eldership and help us see what it is. There's the book of Acts, the book of 1 Timothy, the book of Titus, the book of 1 Peter, and then there's one line in James as well. And this means that some of the most substantial books in, that form the New Testament and that help us understand the theology of church and what church is like and how it's ordered. So books like Romans and 1 and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and 1 and 2, 2 Thessalonians, there's just no mention of eldership at all. And I just wanted to think it's worth pointing that out just to see how the Bible weights some of these things. Because all of that then in mind, when they are mentioned... I think we see that they do have some real importance in the church. In Titus chapter 1, Paul instructs um, Titus, and he says, appoint elders in every town in the churches that he's looking after. And then he says in Acts chapter 14, uh, sorry, yeah, it's not Paul, it's Luke writing here, but Paul and Barnabas are going, and they're planting churches, and they're returning to these churches that they just planted. They're basically like, we need these things to survive. How are we going to do that? We're about to go to a different patch. And what they do is they go to the believers, they encourage them in their faith, they strengthen them in their souls. And then in verse 23, we read, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So for these churches, notice every church that was planted here, for them to, be, for them to work, for them to be healthy, for them to be strong, elders in the church was like a foundational thing. They, they, Paul and Barnabas thought they, they need some elders. It was a good thing. And then, as I said, we don't see much of how the elder thing works out, but in the few places that we do see them in action, I think we do see them carrying some kind of leadership responsibility in what they do. We see elders teaching. We see them discussing theological, the theology of the church. They're encouraged to care for the church. We're really not shown a lot of like, what they actually did. And again, the Bible is just so non-prescriptive in some of these things that we don't really see like, what is it they were actually doing, what was their responsibility, how they fit into the structures, not made abundantly clear to us. And so all we can really be sure is, is that the elders were, they were part of the leadership of the church. But the Bible seems to be concerned a lot more with the fact that they had elders rather than what the elders actually did, the role that they performed. And it does seem that in the New Testament that elders were men. There was, there's two places where Paul talks about what elders actually are, and in both of them we read that they, they are the husband of one wife, They're, or the, the phrase one woman man is, um, it could be translated. It seems to suggest these, they were men. And that's kind of the picture that we get of elders throughout the New Testament. Elders were men involved in leading the church, and it was good and it was healthy for these churches to have them. And I think that that is precisely what the New Testament is trying to communicate to us through elders, that having men 
involved in the leadership of a church is a really good and healthy thing. If you were here last week, you kind of heard part one to this, that we looked a little bit at that whole dramatic movement from Genesis chapter 2, where the whole of it is designed and constructed to emphasize and, and put in a place of prominence the role of women in God's purposes. You remember there was the man in the garden on his own. And in this particular episode, we're kind of to see him as insufficient and inadequate on his own. With what he has, he cannot do what God has called them to be and to do. And we, see, we saw in that that what was needed in that moment was not another Adam, was not another man, was not some buddies to help him out. But we saw in that particular moment the only thing that would do what Adam needed was a woman. What the call of God needed was a woman. What the work of the kingdom needed was a woman. And that was all that would do. And here, I think we see, to some extent, like the other side of that coin. That God is wanting to emphasize that in this particular specific way, God's wanting to see men are really important to the advance of God's kingdom. That just as the woman in Genesis 2, she brought something unique into the equation, into the work, not because she was in any way particularly gifted, notice, not because she's said to be in any way superior to man, or even that she would do things differently, but simply because God has created her as a woman, she was needed. And I think so it is with elders. That God doesn't just want people working together for the purpose of his mission. He wants women for the purpose of his mission and men for the purpose of his mission working together. That the church is at its best if good, godly, and that's, that's how the Bible talks about elders, good, godly men. It doesn't talk at all about gifting, it just talks about Christ-like character that these men have, that it's good for the church if there are men of Christ-like character recognized as elders within the church. And so that is what we, as a whole leadership team, have decided on balance is best for us, that we would have men in the church recognized as elders within the church, that our best interpretation of what we see in Scripture is that it's really good, it's a really healthy thing for us as a whole family to have men involved in the leadership of the church, to call them elders because that's what the Bible calls them, and to recognize this is something of how God seems to have ordered and designed his church. And equally important, I'd really want to point out, is that I don't think that the Bible would want us to make too much of having elders. I just don't think that the Bible speaks itself of making too much of having elders. The eldership is just not the main thing that it has to say about what does church look like and who gets to be involved in it and what the, the whole picture is. But I do think that there's an, enough here that says that this is it's important and it should form some of the picture. And that is really important, I think, for our understanding of what eldership means within our church is that elders are just that. They are just part of the picture, that they form part of the bigger whole of what our leadership team is. That whenever we operate as in leadership, we will always operate as one team. We will do everything as one team. That women and men working together, they will have equal prominence within the church and within the leadership team. 
we will work together. Women will have as much of a voice as we've already looked at. Women will be able to do as, all of the things in all of the same spaces as men. Women will have, and I really want to underline this, women will have as much authority within the church and within the leadership team as men. And going forward, when we talk about leadership team, like I wanted to share everything with us today, but when we talk about leadership, we will talk in terms of leadership team. Because we think that the big thing that the Bible is wanting to emphasize and lift up and celebrate is this togetherness, this harmony, this unity that we have. And we also do think that the Bible has an emphasis on our distinctness and our unity. And we want to recognize that. That God doesn't seem to just want to completely flatten it out and just say, right, you're all leading together. That just means you're all exactly the same. But that even as we are doing the same things, as men and women, because of who we are, one created man, one created woman, we, want to bring, we bring something different to the table. And this is just one way that God is showing and reflecting that within our team. Now, I appreciate this is a difficult, strange dynamic for some of us. Some of you will be like, fine. Some of you will be thinking, this is just weird. I'm struggling with it. I don't quite understand. And it definitely, for us as a team, as we were working it through, took us some time to get to grips with. And I think what was most important for us is it really does just seem to be a dynamic that the New Testament is happy to hold to. That it's not shy in saying it is really good for churches to have elders. And it is also not shy at all in not just telling us men and women should work together, but actively wanting to show us men and women should do all of the things working together. There's these, this bit in Romans chapter 16 where in just seven verses, Paul gives three examples of three prominent women doing all of the work alongside him, using all of the leadership, gifting, and authority that you see in the New Testament. You first have Phoebe, who is given the opportunity, or given the role, the duty, to deliver the letter to the church in Rome. And you might think, that's a basic role. It was her role to then read it out and most likely to then actually teach the letter, answer any questions that came. And this is Paul's probably most complicated letter, to then teach the theology to the church that it was to. She's involved in a teaching role, almost certainly. And then after Phoebe, he mentions Priscilla, who Paul calls a co-worker in Christ Jesus. He's like, she was right there working alongside me, doing the work of Paul. The same Priscilla you meet in Acts chapter 18, that she is teaching a man called uh, Apollos in that place. And so we have a woman teaching a man doctrine, theology, and teaching a man so that he can then go on to teach other people. And we read that she hosted a church in her home, which probably means she had some significant leadership responsibility in it. And then finally, we meet a woman called Junia in, chapter seven, in verse 7, who, along with a man called Andronicus, is described as outstanding among the apostles in the NIV, which is the translation of that verse that has been the scholarly consensus, not just now, but throughout church history. Junior, a woman, directly described as doing what Paul did, of operating in apostolic gifting. You get this kind of picture of this woman, Junior, and, and others, these mixed teams going around, planting churches, teaching churches, encouraging churches, preaching with real authority, teaching the truths of God, overseeing churches. These are just three examples that you can pull out. There's, there's many more. Showing the church, it is at its best when men and women 
work together in all of these giftings. Now, at this point, you might be feeling a bit confused. Lots of questions. And like I said, we get that. All of us love simplicity. And there are definitely simpler leadership models out there. But I, what I really hope, what really, really hope that you get from this is that we are wanting to hear from the whole of the Bible and be faithful to it on this. We don't just want to pull out a few texts because it's a little bit easier to form a position, but we want to hold it all together and we want to bring all of us in on this. Leadership in the church in recent years has been horrendously abused. We've all known it. We've all seen it. And I, we just really want to get it right and to be as transparent as we possibly can with everybody. And so we, we want to invite your questions and your confusion. And if you're thinking at the moment, this is a lot to digest, a lot to try and get my head around. Duncan, you have lost me somewhere along the way. I want to finish with a, a picture that I think the Bible gives us that hopefully just brings a bit of simplicity, a bit of clarity for us all. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul describes the church as a family. He's calling, uh, he calls the church that he writes to uh, and says, you are God's household, which is the church of the living God. And then just a few verses before, he's talking, it's actually one of those passages describing the role of eldership within the church. And he's talking then about what leadership should look like and what it should feel like when you're in the church. And he says this, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So you see, he's drawing these parallels. He's saying, leading in the church is a bit like leading in the home. And this idea of family that we see throughout the New Testament has always been right at the heart of who we want to be and who we feel called to be and who we aspire to be, a household, a family. And I just think this is a really helpful way, perhaps, of thinking about us as a church and where the leadership team fits into that. But following on from Paul's words here, you might find it a helpful picture to have in mind of the leadership team is a bit like taking on some of the responsibilities that mothers and fathers would in a home. But firstly, I think this is a helpful picture because when I think of a family functioning, or maybe you think of like your upbringing, or if you're a mum or a dad, you think of, think of that, and how that looks, both mum and dad in the house pretty much are always doing exactly the same kinds of things. They're sharing all of the responsibilities. But for me and Hannah, when it comes to looking after our home on a day-to-day -day basis, we're just like trying to get through, trying to, <laughs> trying to keep everybody alive, trying to just like muddle through, doing all of the work together, operating in team. And actually, when it comes to the most important areas of church life, uh, sorry, in family life, when it, we find ourselves doing both of those things together, we, we actually prioritize making sure both of us are involved where something's important. So in like teaching our boys or helping them grow and flourish as young men and, uh, and becoming, uh, becoming disciples of God, that's a really important thing in our house. And so we both make sure that we are involved in it. When we're thinking together and looking to make joint decisions about our future or what God might be calling us to as a family, again, both of us take an active interest in that, both of us very much involved in the whole thing. When big financial decisions, again, like we're both involved in it. Actually, the more important, the more kind of, of a leadership thing that it is within our household, the more we are both involved, the more we draw together as team together. We decide together, we act together, we implement together. We're both doing it. All the stuff. I imagine that would be what most families here are like. 
And of course, naturally, some of us, or one of us, will do some of the things that the other one does less of. Hannah is a better driver than me. And then he said, much better driver. Hannah is a better driver than me. <laughs> and so she likes driving, so she does most of the driving. My particular skill set is in launching our boys across the living room, throwing them on the sofa, inventing wild games, trashing the living room. That is my gifting. <laughs> and of course, that's, the, that's what decides who does what. It's, it's who's, where, where our gifting is, how God has made us, who God has made us to be. There's nothing to do with the fact that Hannah's a woman, so of course she must do all of the driving. It's just not how it works. And so we work together, operating in the gifting that God has given us in our family, whilst also recognizing we are different and we are distinct, and that is vital for our family. There is all kinds of studies out there of what it looks like when there is a father absent for the home and the impact that has on a household. And then there are similar studies out there for a mother being absent and what that looks like for a household. And the impact is negative in both cases and it's different in both cases. Revealing, I think, and helping us see mothers and fathers, they do bring something different to a household. Not because they do different things, but because they are different things in the household. Showing this principle that the most helpful, and it is a principle, that the most healthy families are where a mother and a father is present. And again, I'm talking very generalized terms now. All of us can think of Unhealthy families that have had a mother and a father present and exceptionally healthy single-parent family. Please don't hear what I'm not saying in that. But again, we're talking really general patterns. And I think, again, that's what the Bible's trying to show us. That the general pattern, the best, the ideal, if possible, for healthy leadership is men working together with women in leadership. And that that is really good. Not because they do different things, but because they are different things. Now, as with any picture or analogy, you can stretch it too far, the whole thing will collapse. We are not for a moment saying that we consider the leadership team to be the mothers and the fathers within the church family. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all priests. We all equally share the responsibility for us being a healthy family, of discipling one another, of shaping one another as a family. But what I think this picture does help us see is that it is important to have some leaders within a church that operate a little bit like mothers and fathers or take on some of that responsibility. I think particularly as we get bigger in number together, you just need a few people that are happy to say, yeah, look, I will think about the whole. What is best for us as a whole church family? Where is God taking us as a whole? How can we care for everybody as best we can? What does the family need right now? And we hope that that's what it's going to feel like, having a leadership team. That you'll just think, these are people in the church, and they just really care about me. They want to see me flourish. They want to see me grow. They're for me. And I can trust them and just think, with as best a heart as possible, they are trying to do their best to serve the church and us as a family as we follow Jesus. Now, there is so much more I would like to say about how this dynamic, this complex dynamic, works out and why we really do think that it is a beautiful model of how and what church can be. But I also appreciate at this point, some of you are like, I have had enough. I, yeah, I was quite happy on page one of the leadership team thing. You know, I've spoken for two Sundays on it. And there'll be some of you like, I do want to hear more. 
And perhaps you've got some questions, you've got some thoughts, you're just feeling very confused. Firstly, I'd love to encourage you, please come and talk to us. Even this morning, talk to us as a leadership team, talk to your home group leaders, talk to people in the church you trust. We may not be able to get into all of the nitty-gritty detail today, but we just really want to know, how are you feeling about this? How can we help you? And secondly, we're not going to spend any more Sunday time teaching on this, but in about a month or six weeks' time, we're going to have an evening with the leadership team. Anyone and everybody who'd like to come along can come along, ask any questions you've got. We'll try and respond to them, share a bit more detail, hear some of our experiences and some of, hear from some of the rest of the team, all of that sort of stuff. That's why we're leaving a bit of a three-month gap, so we can have these conversations, have this dialogue, um, to make sure that everybody's kind of had a chance to bit process it together. So we spent two weeks focusing on this, because uh, I think it is, it's a really important thing. We want to make sure everybody's on the same page, everyone understands where we're coming from, and it can start the conversation. And while I think it's been good for us to focus on it for a couple of weeks, I really don't want us to miss the bigger picture of what this is about, of our call to be a family following Jesus. It's because we are following Jesus that we think that having a leadership team in place is a good idea. Because as we've seen this morning, we've been looking at how this is, we think, God's will for his church is to have good leadership in place. That he is the one who has called us. This is our response to his leadership. He's called us. He's continuing to lead us. He will continue to lead us into our shared calling of being a family, looking to reach the city of Manchester. And so all of this is to serve that bigger thing as we follow him to all that he has for us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much that you love to gift your church. You have got a calling for each and every one of us to play. And not just calling us into it, but pouring out your gifting, making sure that we are provided for the power that we need to do all you've called us to do. And we thank you, Jesus, that as our king, as the one that we are following, our good shepherd, you have designed your church and ordered your church in a way that is, is best. And Jesus, we recognize humbly that of the, all the ways we could order our church. Undoubtedly, we haven't got things bang on with this leadership team model. But Jesus, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that you do not look for perfection in your people. You don't look for perfection in your church in order to bless us. And I thank you, Jesus, that you will show tremendous amounts of grace to us as a church family as we go forward. And I pray for each of us that you would be speaking to us and helping us grasp some of what you're trying to communicate to us. I pray for really rich, good, helpful conversations in the weeks and months that follow as we work this through together. And Jesus, we ultimately pray and remind ourselves of the great thing that you have called us to and all that you have ahead for us. We thank you for the great plan that you have for the city of Manchester and how you have called us into being in this city to make a difference. We pray that you would use us as a family to continue to reach this city. We pray you'd start next week with the University Mission Week. Would you be pouring out your spirit there? Would you be equipping people as they go out? Would you be drawing people to yourself, we pray. We thank you for the rich calling that you have for us. We thank you that you are leading your church. Amen.